What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. So the sports world is going crazy right now. March Madness is obviously in full swing for both the men's and the women's. The World Baseball Classic is taking place down in Miami. Live Golf had their second event of the year. XFL's on. El Clasico is on. Everything's on. So busy time of the sports calendar. But this podcast episode is going to be a little bit different because there's no interview. I'm just going to talk to you guys about three things that are going on in the sports world right now. Number one, I want to talk about the debate around the World Baseball Classic, whether it is meaningful, whether it's meaningless, and what should happen in the future. Number two, YouTube TV's recent price hike and what it means for consumers, what might happen with YouTube TV and sports in general. And then number three, Michael Jordan potentially selling his majority ownership stake in the Charlotte Hornets. So let's get right into it. All right, I want to talk about the World Baseball Classic to start. So for those of you that don't know, the World Baseball Classic is in its fifth edition. The tournament started in 2006, and it's quickly become the premier global tournament of baseball. It's run by Major League Baseball itself. And the main reason for this is because baseball isn't always an Olympic sport. It was dropped for the 2012, 2016, and 2024 summer games, and Major League Baseball players can't usually play due to the schedule. So MLB started the World Baseball Classic. This year includes 20 teams from countries all over the world, including the United States, China, Japan, Korea, Australia, Cuba, Italy, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, and the Dominican Republic. And the format is very similar to the FIFA World Cup. There's four pools of five teams competing in group play, and then the top two teams from each group advance to the knockout stage. The remaining eight teams then play single elimination knockout games, and the winner is crowned via a championship game on March 21st, this Tuesday, in Miami. So pool play took place in Taiwan, Japan, Arizona, and Florida. There was, again, five different pools, and we're down to four teams. So I'm actually going to the game tonight. It's Sunday when I'm recording this. I'm going to be headed out to uh, Lone Depot Park here in Miami to watch the U.S. play Cuba. Um, and then the, the other semifinal game is tomorrow and the championship on Tuesday. So what are we talking about here? Over the last few days, if you've been anywhere on Twitter or on the internet, it seems that a problem has come up. Many people are upset and complaining about the World Baseball Classic, saying it should be canceled because it's meaningless. They're just exhibition games, and players shouldn't be getting hurt right before Major League Baseball season starts. So in case you missed it, New York Mets all-star closer Edwin Diaz, who recently signed a $100 million deal, the most ever for a relief pitcher in both guaranteed money and average annual value. He tore his patellar tendon and is out at least eight months. So Mets, uh, Steve Cohen is spending $100 million more than any MLB owner in history on salary cap this year. He's obviously trying to win the World Series. And now their star closer, the highest paid closer in Major League Baseball history, is out potentially for the whole year, or at least for the majority of it. And then last night, Houston Astros all-star Jose Altuve broke his thumb when he got hit by a pitch and is going to be out for a couple of months also and will certainly obviously miss the opening day uh, games later this month. So some fans are complaining. I think most of the fans are probably just Mets fans and now Astros fans who are upset that their team members got hurt and, and so forth. But the reason I want to talk about this is, is, um, is, is specifically because so many people complain about Major League Baseball for years. And I've done this too. I'm certainly guilty of this. Major League Baseball does not help itself in a lot of these situations. It's a global game that does nothing to market itself, right? If you look at the NFL, if you look at the NBA, those leagues have done a tremendously better job at marketing themselves, both globally, but also domestically in the United States. And when you think about the World Baseball Classic, 
this is the perfect example, right? So first off, injuries can happen anywhere. I, I think most people realize that uh, what happened to Edwin Diaz was a freak injury. He literally was jumping up and down, celebrating their win. He didn't get hit by anyone. He wasn't on the bottom of a pile, right? He didn't get jumped on. No one hit his knee. He literally was just jumping up and down and hurt his knee. So freak injuries. But players also get hurt in spring training. Spring training is going on right now. And there's actually some players that are playing in spring training that wanted to play in the World Baseball Classic, but couldn't, right? So the easiest way to think about this is um, all World Baseball Classic players have insurance. So if they get hurt, like Diaz, their insurance policy pays their salary for the season. So New York Mets owner Steve Cohen will not have to pay his salary this season. Obviously, Cohen would rather have him play than, than get the money off the books. But the point is uh, that they have insurance for this stuff. So the owners are, are backed if this happens. And some of these players can't get the insurance either in time or at all and aren't able to play. And we've seen this over the years that spring training injuries are just as likely to happen, if not more likely to happen, given the overall numbers. For example, Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, notoriously got hurt in spring training. He hurt his hamstring, I believe it was in the early 2000s, maybe 2001. And it set off a chain reaction of injuries that eventually ended his career. There's other people like Nomar Garcia-Parra, same thing. Adam Wainwright had Tommy John surgery uh, because of an injury during spring training. Aaron Boone, if most of you even remember, who is now the Yankees manager, famously tore his ACL during a pickup basketball game during the offseason after his legendary home run in Game 7 of the 2003 ALCS. So my point is, injuries can happen at any time. The World Baseball Classic is uh, obviously no different. The players were either jumping or got hit by a pitch. This stuff happens, injuries happen, etc. But the reason why I think that the idea uh, that the World Baseball Classic should be canceled is silly is because of how much it's helping the game of baseball on a global stage. If you look at Google search trends right now, uh, baseball is higher than football, right? And, and football counts for both American football, but also international football. So baseball is, is having its moment there. And then if you actually look at the numbers, the hard numbers, baseball has struggled tremendously in the United States over the last several years. Baseball is the world's oldest professional sport. Uh, it was founded in 1876. And in the United States, it's America's favorite pastime or called America's favorite pastime because for nearly 100 years, uh, 90 years basically, it was America's number one sport. Everyone loved it. Everyone watched it. It was by far the most preferred sport anytime you asked anyone. And Morning Consult has some of this data, but then football took over. So the NFL was formed. Football became more popular. Now it's obviously drastically the number one sport in the United States. But then basketball took over, and now basketball is bigger than baseball in the United States. And now soccer is even taking over. MLS games are averaging more, and they're seeing more attendance and more viewership and all this stuff. And people like it more. It's, it's more of a grassroots. Um, uh, it has more of a, a hold on the grassroots than baseball does. So baseball has experienced tremendous decline, so much so that the attendance across Major League Baseball last year was the lowest number since 1996. 26,000 fans attended the average game. So baseball has a lot of problems. But when you look at the World Baseball Classic, it's literally the exact opposite. For example, 70 million people watched last week's game between South Korea and Japan. That's compared to 12.5 million for last year's World Series. So the, the World Series last year averaged 12.5 million viewers, and the World Baseball Classic, seemingly a meaningless game to some people, averaged 70 million viewers in those countries alone. Not to mention, 40 to 50%, so the TV share, the percentage of households within Japan 
that are watching every game, a country with, I don't know, 150 million people in their population, 40 to 50% of all TVs in the country are, are watching their World Baseball Classic games. And then the Dominican Republic averaged a massive 62% share of people watching their game uh, against, or no, sorry, Puerto Rico averaged 62% against the Dominican Republic. So we're seeing whether it's Japan, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Italy, U.S., South Korea, whatever, all of these countries, viewership is up tremendously because people care about this. For example, last night, uh, so Saturday night, Trey Turner hit a go-ahead grand slam um, to give U.S. the lead. Not only did he say after the game that, that, keep in mind, Trey Turner is someone who has played uh, over 40 postseason games in his career, including a World Series. And he said that the home run last night was the biggest hit he's ever produced in his career. And the crowd was the loudest he's ever experienced in his career, right? He said he blacked out and it was also the most memorable home run, home run of his career. Now, I know that's obviously uh, kind of a paradox, blacking out and remembering it as the most memorable, but you get the point. It was a big moment. And when you look at the numbers, uh, these videos are, 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 are doing crazy numbers on social media. Jared, uh, Carabas uh, on Twitter posted a tweet basically comparing all of the numbers between the World Baseball Classic and uh, some other milestones across Major League Baseball in terms of video on Twitter. So Shohei Otani's World Baseball Classic home run off the scoreboard had 7.5 million views on Twitter. Trey Turner's Grand Slam had 7 million views in just 15 hours. And when you look at other memorable moments, they blow them out of the water. 7 million versus 2.9 million for Aaron Judge's 62nd home run. 7 million versus 2.2 million for Albert Pujols' 700th home run. 7 million versus 2.4 million for Bryce Harper's Game 5 NLCS home run. Uh, 7 million versus 1.9 million for Dusty Baker's World Series final out dugout shot. So you get the point. Uh, this is obviously uh, more popular. And I think ultimately what people need to realize is this is how you grow the game. This is not something that you can just sit back on and continue to do what you're doing for Major League Baseball. Now, the talent has bought in for sure. This is by far the most talent that we've seen in the World Baseball Classic over the last 10, 15 years. So that's obviously a huge part of it. But world, uh, the World Cup is obviously huge. The Olympics are huge, et cetera, et cetera. Anytime that you can get people to play for their country rather than just a, a domestic league, it's obviously going to bring more viewership, national pride, et cetera, et cetera. And we're seeing it from the players. They're all saying they're having the most fun of their lives. This means so much to them. So I think it's a little naive to just say, hey, the game should be canceled because people don't want to get hurt. Now, you can move it. You can move it to after the season and do it in November. Then you're going up against football and other things. And I think now is actually a pretty good time, right? It gives you the opportunity to tune up. It's against March Madness, but that clearly hasn't mattered. Uh, the World Baseball Classic and Trey Turner's name were both trending above uh, March Madness last night on Twitter. So we've seen the numbers. The numbers are insane. I don't think the World Baseball Classic is going anywhere soon, and I don't think it should go anywhere soon because of how much it's doing for um, Major League Baseball. Like if you just look at Shohei Otani, uh, I wrote about this the other day in the newsletter. He has doubled his Instagram following before the tournament. He didn't even have an Instagram several years ago, and Major League Baseball helped him create it. And he's only posted like 30 to 40 times. And he had 2 million followers before, about 2 million followers before the tournament started. Now he's up over four. That's more followers than any, that's double. That's twice as many followers as anyone in Major League Baseball has. Mike Trout has about 2 million. So obviously, this tournament is putting people and players on a global stage, and it's presenting them to the world and giving them the opportunity uh, to tune in. And there's people commenting on my tweet saying, I haven't watched baseball in a decade. 
but these games are electric. The atmosphere is awesome. It's like a World Series every single night. And that's exactly what Major League Baseball wanted. So obviously, I am a fan. I hope all of you are also. Injuries are unfortunate. I hope they don't happen to people. I obviously feel uh, for the for, for the fans of teams where they had their star players injured. But ultimately, this is a good thing for Major League Baseball. And if you care about baseball and Major League Baseball specifically, you should want this to continue. You should want uh, this tournament to get bigger and bigger and bigger and more players to commit to it because that's only going to help the game in the long run. All right, before we get to our next topic, let's quickly hear from the sponsor of today's episode. This episode is sponsored by Golden. Did you know that a Joe Montana jersey recently sold for over $1 million on Golden Auctions? Golden is the leading and most trusted destination for some of the most significant pieces of sports and pop culture collectibles. And better yet, it's not just for high ticket items. Golden's marketplace is open 24-7 and weekly auctions featuring authenticated and graded collectibles, all just starting at $5. That means collectors of all kinds can enjoy the same quality, convenience, and seamless user experience that Golden is known for at any price point. And here's the best part. Golden is offering no marketplace fees for items sold up to $10,000. So vault and list your items on Golden's marketplace now to enjoy this limited time offer. I'm a big fan of the platform, and I think you will be too. Head over to golden.com to get started. That's golden, G-O-L-D-I-N.com. All right, so the next thing I want to talk about is YouTube TV. I was minding my own business, just hanging out, doing some work last week in the afternoon, and I got an email from YouTube. And YouTube essentially said in a long-winded paragraph that they were raising the price of YouTube TV. I'm a subscriber, obviously. I imagine a lot of other people that are listening to this podcast are subscribers. Also, for those that don't know, YouTube TV is essentially um, an alternative to cable in the United States. So instead of subscribing to a cable package where you need cable boxes in your house or uh, these expensive deals, you can subscribe to YouTube TV. It's done through YouTube. They have access to a bunch of channels and you pay a discounted price. The service was initially introduced in 2017 at a rate of $35 per month. And again, you can pay uh, $100, $200, even some people are paying upwards of $300, depending on what their package is, included with the internet, how many boxes, et cetera. So it was a significant discount compared to cable. And this aligns with everything we've seen over the last few years with people cutting cable. But the price has drastically increased over the last few years. So it was introduced for $35 in 2017. It jumped from $40 to $40, then $40 to $50 in 2019, $50 to $65 in 2020. And now it's jumping from $65 to $73 a month. So from the span of 2017 to 2023, it's increased more than 100%, going from $35 a month to $73 a month. Now, the interesting part of this to me is that YouTube TV, when they inter- when they added uh, when they increased the price in 2019 and 2020, they added channels. They added like HGTV, Food Network, Nickelodeon, MTV, a few other things. But this time, uh, that was in 2019 and 2020. So both times they increased prices, they blamed it on content, saying, "Hey, we're adding more content. Obviously, these channels cost money. You guys are going to pay the difference." But now. Not only did they not add channels, they said uh, content has become more expensive, but they didn't actually add anything. They've actually reduced channels and removed channels. So earlier this month or last month, I guess, MLB Network was removed uh, from YouTube TV. So they dropped MLB Network. And it's important to remember, they don't have the regional sports networks. They don't have Bloomberg TV. They don't have Lifetime. They don't have the NHL Network. They don't have any of this stuff. So it's it's obviously uh, a collection of 100 plus channels. A lot of them people don't watch. Some people do watch uh, certain ones, obviously. 
And uh, now the price is about $900 a year. And the reason why this is interesting to me is not only for what channels they do or don't have, but YouTube TV is now more expensive than Hulu's bundle deal. So Hulu uh, obviously has the, the live similar to YouTube TV where you can stream. But Hulu's deal is 70 bucks a month, and it includes Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. So that's an additional, I don't know, 20 bucks of value that you're getting on top of the, the streaming services. So the, the part that's interesting to me here is um, YouTube TV, in my mind, has the best product. It's why I subscribe to the service. It's why I got it. And uh, they've done things like they just introduced multi-viewer for uh, March Madness, which is uh, simulcast. Basically, you can watch two March Madness games or even up to four at a time. And this hasn't rolled out to everyone. They're testing it out. They just bought Sunday Ticket where they're paying $2 billion a year. And the most frustrating part, though, is that this price increase isn't even because of Sunday Ticket. So many people were commenting on my tweet saying, yeah, they just got Sunday Ticket. They're paying $2 billion a year. Like, this is great. I was paying $300 a year for Sunday Ticket. And you're still going to have to pay for Sunday Ticket. They increased the price irrespective of that. So Sunday Ticket is still coming. They haven't done that yet. This is not including Sunday Ticket. You're going to have to go in and you're going to have to buy Sunday Ticket as an additional item on top of that. So don't, don't even think about that. Like this is absent of Sunday Ticket. The price is still going up. But it's going to be interesting to see because YouTube TV, again, has the best product in my opinion. Um, they're, they're doing a bunch of things from a tech perspective that could be great. Everyone wanted multi-viewer for Sunday Ticket. It looks like they may have it now this year if they're testing it for March Madness and, and hopefully it's ready by the football season. Um, I just, I, I don't see where we go from here, right? Like the whole port, the whole part of YouTube TV when it came out was that it was a cheaper option to cable. Now it's actually more expensive than a lot of cable options. I was just Googling this before I uh, jumped on the podcast and I was looking at some of the services. Spectrum uh, has a TV plan that offers 125 channels at a cost of $60 a month for the 12 months. Uh, AT&T is $65 a month. Verizon Fios is $75 a month. Uh, Xfinity, right? There's other ones. And some of these packages include internet, which you have to get separately from YouTube TV. So that's another thing. But YouTube TV obviously has some some, some uh, pros too, where it's month to month. You can cancel at any time. You can actually turn it off uh, in between, call it football season and baseball season or whatever it is, right? You can pick which months you do it. So I still think that there's a lot of pros. I'm not going to be canceling my subscription. But I think what we're doing here is we're just recreating cable. That's literally what we're doing. We're just recreating cable on a streaming service. And this is going to continue and continue and continue and continue. They're going to increase prices year after year after year after year. They're going to blame it on inflation. They're going to blame it on content. They're going to blame it on everything but themselves. Uh, the product better get better, though, because if it doesn't, they're going to see significantly more churn uh, than they have in the past. Because when you're increasing the price at 12% annually, that's a drastic increase for people. Because uh, obviously, as a business, you're, you're making up for it from a profit perspective. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. The, the amount of customers that are churning would be too much. But people are going to get fed up, right? If you're paying $100 or $150 and you still need to get internet and Wi-Fi and et cetera, uh, that becomes a considerable problem. So I would keep an eye out for that. I think it is uh, interesting, especially kind of what we've seen going on with regional sports networks. Live sports and uh, news are the only two things keeping the cable bundle alive. If some of that moves more towards streaming, whether it's Amazon or some of these other places, Apple TV, et cetera, we're going to see these numbers decline, decline, decline. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think we went from 100 million households with cable uh, several years ago to now we're about 65 million. So we've seen a drastic decrease over the last few years. 
that number is going to continue to decline. Services like YouTube TV, especially when they're adding um, uh, premium products like NFL Sunday Ticket, are only going to continue to grow. Their pricing power is only going to get stronger, and consumers are end up losing in the end. But it's a free market. You're able to choose which service you subscribe to. Uh, everyone should do their homework, figure out which option is best for them and their family. All right, before we get to topic number three, let's quickly hear from the second sponsor of today's episode. This episode is sponsored by SoFi. SoFi is the all-in-one finance app, helping you bank, borrow, invest, and save. SoFi's mission is to help members achieve financial independence and realize their ambition, all in one app. It's the single app you need to get your money right. I'm a SoFi member, and I love it. SoFi is legit, and they comply with the strict regulatory standards of the FDIC, so you can be sure that your money is safe. Visit SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano to learn more. That's SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano. All right, let's get back to this episode. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about for today's episode is a report that recently came out from ESPN and Adrian Wojnarowski that stated that Michael Jordan is reportedly very, very close to selling a majority stake in the Charlotte Hornets. So for those of you that don't know, Michael Jordan uh, paid $275 million for a majority stake in the NBA Charlotte Hornets in 2010. The team is now valued by Sportico at $1.77 billion. That's a 627% profit over a 13-year period. That is obviously tremendous, especially when you consider how bad the Hornets have have been. For context, the Hornets have posted a winning record just four times in the last 17 seasons. The reason I say 17 seasons is because Jordan actually owned a minority stake in the team for a few years before he bought the majority stake. So he's been involved with the franchise for 17 seasons. They've posted a winning record just four times. In those 17 seasons, they've made the playoffs just three times, and they've lost in the first round every single time. So they've never won a playoff series in Jordan's 17 years with the team. They also had the worst season in NBA history, going 7-59 and 59 one year. That literally is the worst season in NBA history. Um, so the team is, is valued at $1.77 billion. I wouldn't be surprised for them to go much higher than that. Obviously, we've seen what the Suns just sold for $4 billion. Um, the, the, the multiples on these businesses are typically around six times revenue. And uh, the team will do or did about $275 million in revenue last year. So that kind of falls in line. But what we saw with the Suns is I think they went for somewhere from eight to 10 times revenue. Uh, and there's a few reasons for this, but we'll get to that in a second. More importantly, he is supposedly selling the team um, to two different people. Gabe Plotkin uh, who is an investor. He owns a firm, I believe it's called Melbourne Capital, and Atlanta Hawks minority owner, Rick Schnall. And MJ would ma- maintain a minority stake in the team. So this is important, one, because MJ is currently the league's only black majority owner, so there would be no more uh, black majority owners in the NBA. And secondly, uh, Gabe Plotkin and Daniel Sundheim, who founded D1 Capital Partners, bought a, a large minority stake from Jordan in 2020. So now they're basically trying to up that stake and and buy majority of the team, if not the vast majority of the team. And the reason why I think this is interesting is is, uh, because I've written about this. I've talked about this. I would not be selling an NBA team right now if I didn't need to. So I've talked to uh, several NBA owners, both current and, and former NBA owners about this over the last several months. And the majority of them agree that the NBA is uh, the highest growth league over the next decade. Major league, right? If we're talking to NFL, 
NBA, MLB, NHL, Premier League, etc. They think that the NBA valuation-wise is going to grow more than any other league. And the reasons for this are quite simple. Uh, well, first, actually, before we get to the reasons why, one reason what they've pointed out where they think it could not happen, uh, there's two reasons. One is RSNs, regional sports networks. Uh, a prominent NBA owner today was telling me about this a month ago, saying the biggest risk to the business was RSNs. And then literally a week later, uh, Diamond Sports filed for bankruptcy or, or missed a payment and, and was facing bankruptcy. They've now filed for bankruptcy. And it's a legitimate concern, right? They're paying these uh, these teams a lot of money in local rights that uh, is, is apparently going to go away now. The teams will not be able to make as much money selling direct to consumer. The leagues won't be able to make as much money by packaging up the rights, et cetera. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, but I think that's a small chunk of it in the long run. The other threat that I was told was uh, the idea that players might eventually want equity in the league. And I do think that that will happen at some point. This has been a debate that's going on forever. The idea that uh, individual players should get equity, right? LeBron James, he can sign a $250 million contract with the Los Angeles Lakers, but how much is he really worth? LeBron has undoubtedly provided more value to the NBA than he has gotten in return from a monetary standpoint. That's just a fact. I don't think many people would argue that. But the idea has always been that it's really difficult to figure it out, right? Like, are you going to give LeBron equity? What happens if he leaves? What happens if he retires? What happens if he gets hurt? Where does that equity go? What happens to it, et cetera? So I think what's going to end up happening, and, and Michelle Roberts uh, from the Players Association has hinted about this in the past, is that they're going to want to participate in the upside of the league as the most valued component of the league, the players. But what they're going to do is they're going to basically request some type of phantom equity or some piece of equity in all of the teams and put it in a fund for the players. So, you know, I don't know how they'll disperse it. I don't know how they'll participate in it. But essentially, uh, the Players Association will benefit by by uh, gathering this and bundling up the equity from a bunch of different teams. That may happen. I think some owners are actually already pricing it into their models when they go look at teams to buy and so forth. Uh, but those are the two risks. And in my mind, the benefits and the upside drastically outweigh it. And I'll run through them real quick. So one is media rights are about to explode. Uh, media rights are currently $25 billion package. They're going to be renegotiated within the next 12 to 24 months here. They're reportedly uh, looking for a $75 billion deal. So three times what we've seen. And I don't have the chart obviously on the podcast, but if you go look it up, NBA valuations were $634 million. The average team was worth in 2014. When they agreed to that new deal at $25 billion, which was uh, a multiple of the previous deal, they doubled overnight to $1.1 billion. So valuations literally doubled with the new deal. I think that's what we're going to see again. Team values are just under $3 billion, the average team, uh, $2.8 billion. I think we're going to see teams double again. There's no reason why the Suns would have traded for $4 billion without it. So I think that's already being priced in. I think Michael Jordan is going to get much higher for the team than $1.7 billion. And that's a huge uh, piece of it. I think the next big piece of it is a global and growing game. So for those of you that don't know, the NBA five, six, seven years ago uh, sat down and they said, we're going to place an emphasis on China. It's a huge market, huge population. We need to grow the game there. We need the business to be bigger. So over the last decade, they have specifically tried to grow the business in China. It's now a $5 billion business. There's 1.5 billion people there. Athletes go there. Steph Curry goes there. LeBron goes there. Kobe Bryant would go there. They all go there because it's a massive business for the NBA, for its partners, for the players, et cetera. Now, the league is going to do the exact same thing in Africa and India. I'm telling you, they're already doing this in Africa. They started uh, the BAL. Uh, which is the the uh, basically the pro version of the NBA within Africa. They're trying to to grow players up to want to play basketball there. They're creating a business around it. 
Uh, and it's going to be a big business. In, India is the same thing, right? India is 1.4 billion people compared to 335 million people in the United States. So this is going to get bigger internationally. Uh, we're already seeing players. I think there was 29 or 30 players in the late 1990s that were international players in the NBA. And now there's over 100. So uh, it's already expanding internationally. It's only going to get bigger. That brings additional dollars from China, from Africa, from India, uh, from Europe and other places. So that's reason number two. And reason number three is something you guys have probably heard about, but it's the idea that um, the investor base for NBA teams is getting larger and also more diversified. So the NBA decided a few years ago uh, that teams were getting too expensive, right? The NFL professional sports teams, the NFL average team is now worth $4.1 billion. NBA is worth $3 billion. MLB is worth just over $2 billion. Uh, NHL is worth $1 billion. MLS is even now worth over $500 million or $600 million for the average team. So teams are getting really expensive. There's only so many people that can afford this and want to pay for these teams. Even as minority investors, if you're spending $20 million or $30 million or $50 million on, on a minority stake in a team, you want more than season tickets, right? Like you want access. You want to be making decisions. Like these are big boy investments. And I think what we've seen is the investor base has just shrunk. So the NBA noticed this and they said, we're going to do something about this. We're going to change it. So they had started to allow private equity firms to take minority stakes in clubs. So there were two rules off of this. Uh, private equity firms couldn't own more than 30% of a team. And one single private equity firm couldn't own more than 20% of a team. So you couldn't go buy 20% of team, and then they couldn't sell uh, the stakes to multiple private equity firms for more than 30% of the team. And a bunch of funds popped up. Um, there, there, there's a few different uh, funds like Dial Capital Partners, uh, Arctos Sports Partners, Sixth Street. They've all gone and they've acquired minority positions. They raised a bunch of money, hundreds of millions of billions of dollars even. And they acquired minority positions in nearly 10 NBA teams. The Atlanta Hawks sold some equity. The Golden State Warriors sold equity. The Kings in Sacramento sold equity. The Utah Jazz, San Antonio Spurs, et cetera. All these teams started unloading minority positions to these funds. And when you think about it, this is amazing for both of these parties. For the PE firms, they're able to go raise a huge chunk of money where they collect management fees from for an asset that's relatively illiquid. This money is going to be locked up for a decade plus. It has a strong track record of price appreciation. So they know they're going to make money on it. It's locked up for a decade. So they're going to get 2% every single year on this money. And then, um, you know, the, 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 the LPs in these funds aren't going to complain because the, the prices go up so much. So, and then on the MBA side, uh, you're able to offload the, you're, you're increasing the demand is the easiest way to think about it for a fixed asset, right? There's only so many teams. There's only so much equity to go around. You're increasing the demand. Now the price goes up. But the NBA has now doubled down on that. Now they're saying that sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, and endowments can invest. So that means everyone from Saudi Arabia to BlackRock to Princeton University to the California State Teachers Retirement System can own a minority stake in an NBA franchise. They all have to be approved by the individual league office. So we'll see. I don't think anyone has done any deals yet. But again, this is only going to increase prices. So my point is, I'm surprised that Michael Jordan is selling his ownership stake. I don't know what he's doing with the money. I don't know if he has any plans. I don't know if he has a, something else lined up. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. It's really none of my business. Um, but I am surprised that he is selling his stake in the Hornets because I think valuations are probably going to double over the next decade. He's leaving uh, potentially billions of dollars on the table. So we'll see what happens. I think he probably uh, has people advising him 
on this stuff too. And, and, and I'm sure there's other things that he has to think about, but, um, I'm surprised. I think that, uh, he obviously hasn't seen the success that he wants. It's probably a little bit harder than he thought it might be. And he is bailing. He's saying, Hey, look, I want out of this and, uh, see what happens. You know, maybe he doesn't end up selling, but that's the report right now. And, um, it's looking like he's going to move on from Charlotte. So that's it for today. Uh, I do have one ask from everyone. I want you guys to email me. So I appreciate everyone that listens to this podcast. You guys are the best. Uh, some of you reach out on Twitter. Some of you reach out on the newsletter, et cetera. Send me an email with topics that you want me to talk about. I'm going to be doing a little bit more of these episodes where I just break down the most interesting topics in sports business. Uh, this is stuff I love, right? So I spend a lot of my time looking at it anyways, and I want to hear more from you guys. Send me topics that you want to talk about. Uh, send me questions that you want me to answer on the podcast. Send me things you liked or didn't like about the podcast. Feedback is always important. Um, but shoot me an email. My email is jmpompliano at gmail.com. That's J-M-P-O-M-P-L-I-A-N-O at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you guys. But otherwise, we will talk soon. Have a great day. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.